Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, April 26th, and we're talking millennials. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I've got Fool.com's Brian Faroldi with me in the studio. Brian, what's going on? Hey, Dylan, what's going on? I'm feeling the pressure here. I got the lights on. I can actually see the person that's recording the studio. I'm talking to you face to face. This is intense. There is some extra pressure today because it's not just Austin behind the glass watching us. We have some extra attendees in the studio. Yeah, we are on um, family break. It's uh, April vacation for us up in Rhode Island. So I brought the family down with us. They are in the, the studio. They're going to come on later. And we are here on uh, April break. And we're, of course, going to come visit the Fool in DC. Yeah, this is one of those moments where you need to prove to your children that you have a job. Correct. Right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't just sit at home and stare at a computer all day. There actually is a company behind the uh, the website, right? I swear, kids, <laughs> Dad has a real job. Um, we are we are talking millennials today, and and actually, you being remote, I think, is kind of a perfect example of one of the things that we're going to be talking about. But really, um, what we want to do at the show is kind of give a breakdown of what people might want to expect with the millennial generation becoming a larger part of the workforce in the United States, a couple different ways to play it in terms of stocks. I'm kind of thinking about this the same way that Jason Moser has his war on cash. Yeah, totally. I mean, millennials are an incredibly important generation. They are an increasingly, uh, their purchasing power is going up. They, they have certain preferences that are different from other generations. So, getting to know them to getting to understand them is critical for investors. Yeah. And you know what? We're both millennials too. Yes. Uh, I just barely <laughs> Rarely qualify, but I am an millennial. But you qualify, and and for the purposes of the show, we're going to generally define it as people that are between 22 and roughly 37. We both fall in that range, Brian. Yes. We can enjoy that. You are at different <laughs> spectrums of the range, but correct. We are and both I, millennials. I think that gives us good perspective for the conversation. Uh, some of the main stuff that you'll you'll hear when people are talking about millennials, and some of the stuff that gets most of the headlines, is that you have this mentality of experiences are far more important than maybe items. A little bit less consumer-oriented in what they're using to spend their discretionary income on, a little bit more experiential. Yeah, totally. And millennials, you know, they really grow graduating college and coming of age kind of in the middle of, of the 2008, you know, crisis. So, their experience and their economic opportunities are just vastly different than a lot of other generations. And you kind of see that in the numbers that are coming out. And to kind of pile on top of that, there's also this massive trillion dollars of student loan debt that the millennials as a group are kind of saddled with. So, they are facing some some unique, uh, unique economic uh, experiences that other generations are not. Yeah, that student loan debt uh, comes with them being the most educated of recent generations, at least in U.S. history. A higher portion of that group has a bachelor's degree than any other of the previous generations. But that education has not necessarily meant higher wages. So I think what we've seen is a lot of uh, very deliberate spending on behalf of millennials. You know, most of it is going towards things they really care about, either experiences they want or uh, brands that they're very aligned with. You see that there's much more of a focus on, okay, well, you know, what's this company's impact if I'm going to be giving them my money? There's more of a sense of voting with dollars there. Yeah, totally. A lot of millennials do think that uh, they want to have some kind of positive social impact on the world when they are spending with who they want to work work for, with who they want to vote for. That is definitely something that companies today are going to have to uh, to keep in mind. And you brought up the uh, the economics, and one stat that I found really eye-opening was that the average millennial is earning about 20% less than their parents were at the at same age. And at the same time, they also have this huge student loan debt kind of hanging over their head. So, 
when you add that together, it's not surprising to me that I see that the millennials get a rep for living with their parents for a long and being the boomerang generation and not kind of having a delayed a delayed life. Yeah, that delayed life also comes with marriage and settling down and having kids. You know, one of the other kind of major tropes that you see with the millennial generation is that they are not getting serious with partners nearly as quickly. Uh, I I guess I kind of fall into that group. I'm 28 and I uh, have a very serious girlfriend, but we're kind of delaying things for a little while. Um, but that's certainly the reputation of this group is because of all the financial hardship that they kind of came of age during. I think that they're uh, focusing a little bit more on some of those major life decisions, not necessarily just kind of following the path because the path is there. And completely. And these things are obviously great to know as investors because when you understand what they're what they're facing and the decisions they're making, you can pick and choose companies that kind of play directly into their hand. And I think we have a good list today that's going to do exactly that. Yes. And a lot of these businesses, as you might expect, digital first. The first one that I want to talk about is Match Group, one that most people that are out there in the millennial dating scene are very familiar with. Yeah, this is a leading provider of online dating apps and products, and they have more than 40 in their portfolio. Uh, their kind of crown jewel is, of course, Tinder, but they also have uh, Match, OkCupid, and dozens of like smaller brands. And the big benefit for, for this company is the network effect is super critical here, right? I mean, if you're dating, you naturally want to be on the site that has the most participants that can fit your, your specific needs and preferences. So, being the top dog is a big deal here, and Match, Match Group is definitely the top dog. The pre-digital parallel there would be, you know, you wouldn't go to a bar that no one else was at if you're looking to meet people, right? With all these platforms that they have, they have a critical mass, a lot of people in all of these various geographies that are looking to meet other people. That really strengthens the offering. It brings more people to the platform. And they've been immensely successful in either growing or acquiring all these businesses that kind of fall into the dating space. Yeah, completely. And I think you brought up a good word there, which is acquiring. This is a company that is very acquisitive. If they see kind of a niche coming up, they're very happy to go up there and make an offer because, again, they want to be the biggest. They want to have the most. And they clearly do. And when you look at their results, uh, the numbers have been just great out of this company for a long time. This this stock has actually smashed the market since it since it uh, came public, and and more recently they're reporting revenue growth, you know, above twenty percent. They're they're nicely profitable, and this is a company that is really working out for investors. Yeah, and and I think there was a hiccup there at one point where. Facebook had said, you know, we we might get into this dating thing. There might be something interesting kind of going on there. And and the market kind of took a deep breath wondering what was going to happen with Match. They have since rallied. And and I think a lot of the concerns uh, broadly with Facebook having access to people's data and and maybe not being um, so judicious in their, their privacy efforts have maybe uh, made all of these uh, design dating apps that are all under one specific umbrella much more appealing. You know, I think I think the market has looked at all that and said, you know what, uh, it doesn't seem like Facebook is as much of a competitor as maybe we thought they were. I mean, the key takeaway for me is don't bet against Twi- Tinder, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's something special about that that platform that millennials just love. And even though this company is big, is the top dog, uh, there's reason to believe that there's still ample room for this company to grow. I mean, the only, I think it's uh, 50% of millennials currently do not use any sort of online dating product. And I don't know about you, I've been to numerous weddings amongst friends, and how did the, how did the couple meet? It's on dating. So, it's becoming 
totally socially normal for for couples to get together on dating platforms. And when you look at internationally, uh, the numbers are even more stark. I think it's like 75% of international uh, millennials have not used the dating program. So even though this company has come a long way, there's still plenty of opportunity here. Yeah, that's certainly been my experience. Um, you know, in in my pre-girlfriend DC days where I was single, kind of getting to know the city a little bit, um, I found that they were a really great way to meet people, uh, either as friends or you know for dates and stuff like that. And um, I think a lot of people share that experience. I too have been at weddings where you know like Tinder was the linchpin. You know, that, that's what caused the relationship. And I think that the stigma of online dating has really gone away. People are really leaning into it because they realize, you know what, if I'm new to a city and I don't know anyone. It's a great way to get to know folks. Completely. Not only that, but you can, of course, match up by a whole bunch of preferences and that uh, you, you can't necessarily get when you're randomly bumping into strangers that you hope to marry one day. So, I completely get the appeal of this company. All right, Brian, our stock number two is a slightly different tailwind, also digital, but we're looking a little bit more at the workspace here. And this is one that you and I know quite well, Upwork. We've talked about it before on the show. We've also both used this company before. Yeah. Upwork, for those that don't know, is the online matchmaker of freelancers. So companies go there if they want to hire somebody for a specific gig or a specific job, and individuals that are have skills to sell can go there and find work. So this is another market where network effect is critical. Being the top dog, having the most uh, uh, employers and employees to connect together is critical, and they have acquired their way to become the top dog in the space. You hear very often that the millennial generation is the like, digital native generation. You have people that grew up online and really lean into that with their work. And I think that this is a company that really benefits from that. You know, there's so much work out there, especially in the creative field, but even in the work that we do for fool.com, where you don't necessarily need to be sharing an office with someone to get something done. You know, if you're submitting articles, if you're doing video production work, what have you, there are a lot of ways where that can be done remotely and increasingly companies are catching on to the fact that they can get people for, you know, distinct periods to work on projects and it's kind of better to have that arrangement. This is a company that really benefits from that. Yeah, you see the it's positive for both sides. For employers, if they have a one specific job and they want to hire one specific skill and don't necessarily want to take on a full-time employee to have that, this is a great site to go to to get just that one specific task done. And Upwork has thousands of skills that they can that they can go out there and promote and sell, uh, which is huge. And then for employees, well, a lot of people can do this whenever they want. They can choose when they want to work. They can do it on the sides. This is the, the one of the best plays that I see out there for the rise of the gig economy. The gig economy has, has gotten so many headlines over the last couple of years, often associated with Lyft and with Uber, Airbnb as well. But I think this is one that maybe people don't realize quite as much plays into that. You know, Some people are doing this for their full-time jobs because they work in the creative fields and they can do that. Um, I mean, it's very easy now to arbitrage the cost of living where you can charge roughly what you would to live in a major urban Urban area for your work, but live somewhere totally different, you know, and be able to enjoy quite a bit of difference there. Um, with this business, I love the fact that they're able to do the matchmaking, and I have used it firsthand and seen that, you know, in looking for some video production work for The Fool, we found some super qualified people. We were able to augment some of our multimedia work, and it was seamless. You know, they were able to hook us up with great qualified folks, uh, and it didn't really cost us much to make it happen. They were happy to be the matchmaker. That's a pretty good business model, too. They're doing, I think, 20% year-over-year revenue growth. I think one of their early earnings reports were a little disappointing, 
But broad strokes, I like where this company is going because it seems like so many macro trends are pushing it along. Yeah, completely. And and the nice thing here is if if you are a believer in the gig economy rising and millennials kind of picking and choosing when they want to work, where they want to work, uh, this company plays right into that hand. And the the, the potential market here is just massive. I mean, the the global payout for freelancers was. $560 billion. Upwork's revenue, by contrast, is just a tiny portion of that. So, this company has a tremendous growth runway ahead of it, if it can remain the top dog. And they have what I what I think is kind of hard to quantify, but super important when you're looking at a platform as or a software as a service company, and that's that they are the de facto name in that space. So, I don't know of anyone else that has the standing that they do in this community, you know, and that's a testament to the network effect. You know, that's the first place that freelancers are going to go. It's the first place that employers are going to go. You can't underestimate that strength. Yeah, completely. And and uh, uh, speaking to the to the stock, this is a company that came public and had a lot going for it, and so far has not been a great performer out of the gate, which to me is a great showcase of even if everything looks good on paper, you still want to give the company some time to make the shift to a public mentality because it is so different from the private market. So, I think Upwork is down quite a bit from, from its IPO. Uh, but the company itself still looks good, still growing. It's just that it hasn't worked out yet for investors. A testament to why you need to nibble on the first 12 months when a company has gone public. All right, Brian, we have talked about how millennials date. We've talked about how millennials work. Why don't we talk about where millennials are spending their money? We queued up experiences earlier, and our last business for this basket is a company that capitalizes on that. Yeah. Uh, this is another company that me and you talked in detail about before. It's uh, it's Eventbrite. Eventbrite is a leader in uh, middle market entertainment. So they like to say that. Basically, they do any type of gathering. They help to organize it that's bigger than a birthday party, but smaller than Beyonce. So anything that's in the the middle market there, the the very high end, the YouTubes, the Beyonces, the Jay Zs of the world, those that that market is completely dominated by another company called Live Nation, which is which could be another good company for uh, to play on millennials. But Eventbrite is a very interesting niche one that's in the middle. People that are content creators or want to put on shows can go to Eventbrite's platform. They can. Uh, they can uh, get this the the um, thing up and running. They can charge uh, tickets for it. They promote the event. They can process uh, payments. And they can even do analytics to help get the the word out about that. So, seven hundred thousand creators are currently on the platform, and they sold two hundred million tickets at three million live events last year. So, this is a big company. Yeah, and we think of Live Nation specifically in the concert space. I think um, what Eventbrite is is kind of interesting to me. Uh, is that they have some concert businesses, but they really have a lot of other stuff out there. You know, whether it's tours, um, special events, you know, wine tastings, craft brewery tastings, that kind of stuff. There, there's a lot out there that currently isn't being captured by the giants. That creates a nice little space for them to work in. Yeah, totally. And what we've seen thus far is is pretty good results out of the company. Again, newly public, but in their most recent quarter they reported 21% revenue growth. Uh, this is a company that hasn't again performed well from investors out of the IPO gate because the guidance they gave in the last quarter was much lower than expected, and they're saying that they're having a lot of trouble integrating a company that they bought prior to their IPO called Ticketfly, which is a company I know you're pretty familiar with. Yes, uh, as a former Pandora shareholder, uh, I was enthused when they bought Ticketfly, thinking that okay, this is a company that capitalizes on that mid-market in the same way. You go out in DC. So many of the mid-tier venues use Ticketfly, and I thought that was a no-brainer acquisition for Pandora. They weren't able to make that work. I believe they actually wound up selling that stake for slightly less than they paid for it over to Eventbrite. Um, it seems like a no-brainer business. You know, if you are simply connecting people with a valuable platform and selling a digital product, 
that's pretty high margin. Uh, at a certain point, I assume the numbers will work, especially because Eventbrite, like Upwork, is one of the big players in the space. You know, yeah. they, they benefit from that name recognition. Yeah, totally. And if you believe the company's market opportunity here, they essentially think that they could grow 10x uh, just within their current markets, just through kind of organic growth and getting the ticket fly acquisition working. So there's still a lot for investors to uh, to look forward to here and to like about this business for the long term. And if you want a proof in concept. Uh, look at Live Nation. You know that's <laughs> that's been a very successful company. I know Nick Seipel, uh, host of the Energy Show, is a huge fan of Live Nation because where else are you going to go? You know, if you want to go to an event and there's only one way to get the tickets, you got to pay them. And as consumers, we might not love that. As investors, it's a pretty good business opportunity. Yeah, I, I think that both Live Nation and Eventbrite are great ways to play just the rise of spend, rise of spending on experiences over things. These are definitely things that. These uh, products definitely appeal to millennials that want that want in on some special experience. So, totally great stock. Both of both of those companies are totally great stocks for investors to look at. Brian, when you pitched me that we would do a millennial stocks show, uh, you had a lot of names in mind. We're only touching on three. I think what we'll do is break this conversation up and kind of touch on it again down the road. So, listeners, be ready for that. But we're not just going to stop at millennials here. Uh, we're going to go one step further as we wrap this show up, and we're going to touch on Gen Z because we have some Gen Zers here in the studio with us. Yeah, we got some experts. Let's bring them in and hear what they have to say. Yeah. All right, Brian. We are joined in the studio by some special guests. I want to let them introduce themselves, guys. My name's Lindsay Feraldi. My name's Madeline Feraldi. My name's Tyler Feraldi. And you are the children of Brian Feroldi, yes? Yes. <laughs> what do you guys think that your dad does all day? Um, like, write what? and write and what? on his computer, then post it. Yeah. Do you guys do you guys ever read the stuff that your dad does or, no. or see the videos no. that he does? No. No? No. <laughs> oh, Brian. I know, right? <laughs> Well, I know that your dad has gotten you interested in stocks and investing, uh, Tyler in particular. You want to talk about some of the stocks that you own, Tyler? Yeah, the stocks I own is Tesla, Nike, Disney, EA, Activision, and Stitch Fix. I look at that list and I think there are a lot of companies that play pretty well on your generation, Gen Z. So the people that are younger than me and your dad, I think a lot of those video game stocks, Brian, major tailwinds with Gen Z. Yeah, totally. I mean, Tyler is an expert at video games. So, Ty, <laughs> Ty what, what is your favorite video game stock right now? Tencent, because of Fortnite and Clash of Clans. Tencent. So, the owner of part, the largest owner of Epic Games, which makes Fortnites, and they make Clash of Clans, which is another game you really like, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, that's the way things are going, Brian. We were talking about it before the show. Entertainment has changed a little bit. Completely. I mean, Tyler, what's your favorite thing to watch on YouTube? Um, the, like Fortnite videos. Fortnite videos. So this is other people playing Fortnite, and you like to watch the videos to get what tips and tricks on how they do it and stuff, and watch them play, right? Yes. Yeah. So there you go. That is what that generation is doing with their time. I don't know if your experience was different growing up, Ryan, but when I was growing up and I was playing Xbox or PS2 at my friend's house, watching my friend play was the worst part. <laughs> <laughs> yes, completely. <laughs> and I have um, I have a cousin who has kids that are about your age, all you guys, and it's the same thing. They love watching the video game walkthroughs. If they can't play the video games, they want to watch someone else play the video games. 
it's hard for me to wrap my head around. At the same time, your friend, oh, your cousin that you were waiting for, not a professional video game player, was he? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> so it is a different level what they're talking about. It's a but, different I mean, level. The, the draw is there. He is certainly not alone. Do all of your friends do the same thing? Yeah, they just like play Fortnite a lot. They watch, they watch videos of people playing Fortnite, right? Yeah. There you go. So Google, Google, the owner of YouTube, and Amazon, the owner of Twitch, two other great millennial stocks. It's hard to go wrong with those companies. Thank you for the insights on Gen Z. Tyler, uh, thank you for hopping on today's show. Brian. Yeah, awesome to be here. Always, always fun to be in the studio. All right, listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, you can shoot us an email over at industryfocus at fool.com, or you can tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you want more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or check out the videos from this podcast over on YouTube. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass. For Brian Feroldi, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and Fool on! company would a clown like to go to? The Motley Fool. <laughs> <laughs> Why did the penguin go to the wrong company? Because it took the wrong direction. <laughs> <laughs> What's a math teacher's favorite dessert? Pie. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, awesome. Thank you guys so much for helping us out today.